Have you found the keys to unlock your best trip? On a Trafalgar tour, you unlock more than just the world. We give you the keys to discover real connections and one-of-a-kind experiences. It all starts with expert itineraries where everything is taken care of. With Trafalgar, your money goes further, and so do you. Unlock your best self. Discover more at trafalgar.com slash unlock. That's T-R-A-F-A-L-G-A-R dot com slash unlock. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. This is the second part of a special two-part episode. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I suggest you go back and listen to that one first. We'll be right here waiting for you to catch up. And now, on with the show. There was a desert wind blowing that night. It was one of those hot, dry Santa Anas that come down through the mountain passes and curl your hair and makes your nerves jump and your skin itch. On nights like that, every booze party ends in a fight. Meek little housewives feel the edge of the carving knife and study their husbands' necks. That's how the legendary mystery author Raymond Chandler began his novella, Red Wind. And that's pretty close to how some people describe the warm mountain wind that blew through Brentwood in the early morning hours of Sunday, August 5th, 1962. Tall trees swayed in the wind outside the home of Marilyn Monroe that night. A set of antique wind chimes that had been given to the actress by the poet Carl Sandburg tinkled noisily in the darkness. Sometime during the evening, some of the neighbors reported hearing the sound of shouting, then the crash of broken glass. Then came the voice of a hysterical woman screaming, Murderers! You murderers! Are you satisfied now that she's dead? Marilyn Monroe's next-door neighbors, Mr. and Mrs. Abe Landau, returned home from a party in the late Saturday evening and claimed to have seen an ambulance and a police car parked in the cul-de-sac outside the actress's residence. Close to midnight, other people in the neighborhood complained about the noise from a helicopter hovering overhead. Shortly before midnight, a dark Mercedes was speeding east along Olympic Boulevard through Beverly Hills. They were doing at least 55 miles per hour in a 35-mile-per-hour zone. Beverly Hills police officer Lynn Franklin flipped on his lights and siren and chased them down. When Officer Franklin walked up to the side of the vehicle and shined his flashlight inside, he immediately recognized two of the car's occupants. The driver was actor Peter Lawford. He didn't know who the man was sitting next to Lawford in the front seat, but the man sitting in the back seat was the biggest surprise. His face was instantly recognizable. He and his equally famous brother had been on the cover of practically every newspaper, magazine, and news broadcast over the past couple years. Officer Franklin realized at that point that it would be in his best interest to wave these men off with a simple warning. These are just a few of the events that allegedly went down the night Marilyn Monroe died. The story of the death of the legendary actress is one that is shrouded in mystery to this day. It's a tale that may be just another Hollywood tragedy of a life cut short too soon, or perhaps may be at the heart of one of the biggest political scandals in American history. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from the flip side of the flat earth, where the CIA can't get me. And this is The Conspirators. In 1977, a workman went to Maryland's Brentwood home to repair a leaky roof. That's when he discovered the entire house was wired for covert surveillance, 
It's believed that the actress may have been bugged by several interested parties that included the FBI, the CIA, the Mafia, labor leader Jimmy Hoffa, and even her own movie studio, Fox. In the summer of 1962, as Marilyn Monroe's paranoia grew during her last weeks on Earth, she asked a private investigator named Fred Otash to install a recording device on her phone. Otash was surprised by the request because, unbeknownst to Marilyn, he had already done it. Otash was one of the people who bugged Marilyn's home without her knowledge. FBI reports on Marilyn Monroe confirmed their surveillance of her, the infamous Red Diary containing national secrets, as well as their belief that she represented a major security threat to the nation. On July 17, 1962, Bobby Kennedy received an FBI memo detailing the security risk Marilyn Monroe posed to him, his brother, and the entire country. Immediately after, Bobby broke off the relationship and cut off communication with Marilyn. Phone records show Marilyn made at least 17 phone calls to the Department of Justice after that trying to speak to Bobby. Marilyn had already been on a razor's edge before that. She had missed half her days of filming on her latest film, Something's Gotta Give, and Fox ultimately shut down production and fired her. After facing rejection for a second time from one of the Kennedys, Marilyn lost it. She broke down and told some friends that they had done it to her again and that they weren't going to get away with it this time. A week before her death, she showed the diary to her friend Robert Slatzer and told him she planned on holding a press conference to, quote, blow the lid off this whole thing. The story of Marilyn Monroe's final days are a labyrinth of conflicting tales that often paint the star's life as a living hell. One such story goes that on Friday, July 28th, Frank Sinatra invited Marilyn to come hang out at his Cal Neva Lounge. Also in attendance at this excursion were Peter Lawford, Chicago mob boss Sam Giancana, and a number of other notorious mafioso. Sinatra's ties to the mafia were well known, and it's widely believed that Giancana helped secure John Kennedy's nomination to the White House. There was even a rumor that Giancana and Marilyn had been romantically linked off and on. Marilyn returned from that weekend and told a friend that the trip had been a complete nightmare, although she refused to elaborate. Years later, Giancana himself was caught on tape describing how the weekend turned into an orgy in which Marilyn Monroe was drugged and he'd had his way with her. There were even stories that a drugged and nude Marilyn had been photographed during this weekend. But Frank Sinatra told the photographer he had to destroy the pictures. On Friday, August 3, 1962, Marilyn's friend and publicist Pat Newcomb stayed over. When Eunice Murray arrived at 8.30 a.m. that Saturday morning, Marilyn was already awake and tiling her floor. She was upbeat and excited about a delivery of some furniture from Mexico she was expecting. There are also some reports that claim Fox had rehired her after Bobby Kennedy put in a good word for her, and she was due to begin production again on Something's Gotta Give Monday morning. Around noon, Marilyn's mood changed once again after she got into a loud argument with Newcomb over the woman's ability to sleep in, while Marilyn continued to suffer insomnia and night terrors. Pat claimed they made up and made plans to have dinner at Peter Lawford's house later that evening. According to Eunice Murray, later that afternoon, Marilyn asked her if she had any oxygen around. This concerned Murray enough to phone for Dr. Greenson, who arrived around 5 p.m., although why this would concern Murray is debatable. 
since she would have well known that oxygen was believed back then to be a hangover cure. Greenson left around 7 p.m. Newcomb went to Peter Lawford's house without her and told them Marilyn wouldn't be joining them because she wasn't feeling well. Marilyn asked Eunice Murray if she wouldn't mind spending the night. One thing Marilyn Monroe was well known for was talking to people on the phone. In fact, she was notorious for calling friends in the middle of the night and waking them up just to chat when she herself couldn't sleep. She kept two telephones in one of the spare bedrooms with extra long cords that she could drag down the hall into her bedroom at night. This was one of the things that Eunice Murray told Sergeant Jack Clemens that had made her worried when she got up to use the bathroom and saw the light beneath Marilyn's door at midnight and the phone cord trailing beneath it. There are problems with this story, though. For one thing, police noted that Marilyn had thick new carpet installed that would have made it impossible to see a light beneath her door. For another, Murray's bedroom had its own adjoining bathroom, making her entire excuse for getting up in the middle of the night suspect. At around 7 p.m., Marilyn spoke to Joe DiMaggio Jr. on the phone, and according to him, she sounded chipper and upbeat, and even spoke to him about her future plans. Although Peter Lawford claimed otherwise when he told police Marilyn phoned him at 7.30 p.m. and that her voice was slurred, and she sounded terribly depressed. She told Lawford to say goodbye to the president, and say goodbye to yourself, because you're a nice guy. Then the line went silent. That same night, Marilyn made calls to a number of other friends as well. This included her friend from New York named Henry Rosenfeld, her close friend Jean Carmen, as well as Sidney Gilleroff, her hairdresser. Gilleroff, who claimed to have no idea about Marilyn's affair with Bobby Kennedy, later admitted in an interview that Marilyn told her Kennedy showed up at her house earlier that afternoon and pushed her around. According to Gilleroff, Marilyn said Kennedy had told her, If you threaten me, Marilyn, there's more than one way to keep you quiet. Gilleroff's statements corroborate statements made by Fred Otash during an interview with ABC's 2020 that was later quashed by ABC executives with ties to the Kennedy family. The last person it's believed Marilyn called that evening was a screenwriter friend named Jose Balaños. According to Balaños, Marilyn called him at around 10 p.m. and shared with him a secret that he claimed would shock the world. But Balaños never revealed what Marilyn told him, and he took the secret with him to the grave. One thing he did reveal about the call, though, was that at one point, something interrupted her, and she put the phone down and never returned to pick up the line again. As with many of the details about Marilyn Monroe's last days, there are conflicting stories about what followed. Which also leads to the theories on what happened next. Now, of course, we have to accept the idea that Marilyn Monroe really did commit suicide. She had a family history of mental illness, and it's known that she had attempted suicide several times before. But to accept this as the truth, one has to discount all the eyewitness testimony and disappearing evidence following her death. Another theory that bears considering is that Marilyn died from an accidental overdose that was a direct result of both Dr. Greenson and Dr. Hyman Engelberg accidentally overprescribing a lethal combination of nembutal and chloral hydrate. Taking the two drugs together can be deadly since chloral hydrate inhibits the body's ability to break down nembutal. It's believed that the two doctors were attempting to wean Marilyn off the drug she was taking. In this theory, it's suggested that Marilyn went to Dr. Engelberg for a prescription for Nembutal. But when Dr. Greenson came over on the night of her death, 
He told Eunice Murray to administer a chloral hydrate enema to Marilyn after he left in order to help her sleep, without checking first to see if she was already on Nembutal. Now, this is a theory that actually fits many of the facts pretty well. If it was revealed that the two doctors inadvertently gave a lethal cocktail of drugs to the most famous actress in the world, their careers would be ruined. This would help explain why the two of them were both on the scene when Sergeant Clemens arrived, as well as their evasive testimony. It's also said that Marilyn's death took a major toll on Dr. Greenson, and he stopped seeing patients after that. But this theory doesn't fully explain why the police and other officials would go to such lengths to cover for these two doctors. That is, unless the cover-up was all an attempt to hide Marilyn's relationship with the Kennedys. Which brings us to the next theory. Private investigator Fred Otash reportedly had tape recordings of what went down at Marilyn Monroe's house on the final day. Over the years, other witnesses have come forward to corroborate what was allegedly on those tapes. One of those was Marilyn's handyman, Norman Jeffries. Years after Marilyn's death, Jeffries became terminally ill. He told a reporter that he didn't have much time left to live, and there was no way he could get sent to the electric chair now for what he knew. Which, in and of itself, is an unusual thing to say unless you were somehow involved in a murder plot. Jeffries confirmed that on the afternoon of her death, Robert Kennedy showed up at Marilyn Monroe's house. This contradicted the official story, of course. Officially, on August 4th, Robert Kennedy was miles away in a Northern California hotel with his family. But even former Los Angeles Police Chief Daryl Gates admitted in his autobiography that story was a ruse, and that Kennedy was really in L.A. the day Marilyn died. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. According to Norman Jeffries, Robert Kennedy showed up at Marilyn's house that afternoon at around 4 p.m. with Peter Lawford. They told Jeffries and Eunice Murray to get lost for a little while so the two of them left the house for about a half hour. Jeffries admitted he didn't know what had happened during the time he was gone, but when they returned, Marilyn was an emotional wreck. According to Fred Otash and others who claimed to have heard the tapes from that day, a loud argument erupted between Marilyn and Bobby that afternoon, in which Bobby kept shouting at her, Where is it? I have to have it. Otash said you could hear a lot of objects being loudly shuffled around while Peter Lawford kept telling everyone to stay calm. This encounter ended with the sounds of Marilyn crying and a door slamming loudly. But this isn't the only thing Otash claimed to have recorded on that day. He also said he had another recording from later that night, 
during which he heard Bobby Kennedy return to the house, and after some loud scuffling, he heard Marilyn Monroe die. Keep in mind, Otash never produced these recordings, although several other credible witnesses have claimed to have heard them. One of Marilyn's neighbors, Elizabeth Pollard, also claimed to have seen Bobby Kennedy arrive at Marilyn's house again at around 10 p.m. in the company of two men she had never seen before, one of whom was carrying a black medical bag. Norman Jeffries said that once again Robert Kennedy told them that he and Eunice Murray needed to get lost. They went to a neighbor's house and stayed there for a little while. At about 10.30 p.m., Jeffries said that he and Murray saw Kennedy and the other two men leave Marilyn's house. Figuring it was safe for them to return, they heard Marilyn's dog barking in the guest cottage, where they saw a light on and the door standing open. Now, if any of this is true, we don't know for certain what happened during Kennedy's nighttime visit. Although some of the witnesses who claim to have heard Fred Otash's recording say they heard Bobby telling one of the other men to give Marilyn something to calm her down. If one of the men had given Marilyn an injection of barbiturates, this may tie directly into other eyewitness testimony, including that of Norman Jeffrey, and two ambulance drivers who said they were there when Marilyn died. According to Norman Jeffries, he and Eunice Murray found Marilyn lying nude and in terrible shape on the cottage's daybed. He said that it didn't appear as if she was breathing and her color was awful. Eunice phoned for an ambulance, then she called Dr. Greenson who said he'd be right over. Greenson allegedly told her to call Dr. Engelberg as well. This would all seem to be confirmed by some of Marilyn's neighbors who said they saw an ambulance and police cars show up at her house around 11 p.m. At first, Schaefer Ambulance, the local ambulance service, denied sending any sort of vehicle over to Marilyn's house that night. But some journalists were eventually able to track down the ambulance drivers, James Hall and Murray Leibowitz. Schaefer Ambulance then denied that Hall and Leibowitz were even employed by them back then, but payroll and social security records proved otherwise. Reporters even found a photo of Hall taken at an accident scene just a few weeks before August 4th. Schaefer Ambulance then tried claiming they had made a mistake, although they insisted it had not been Hall at Marilyn's house, but another employee named Ken Hunter, who had responded to the scene that evening. This too proved to be a lie because employment records showed that Ken Hunter didn't even start working for Schaefer until the 1970s. So why would Schaefer Ambulance go to such lengths to cover up what their employees were doing that night? Well, one possible explanation is that Schaefer Ambulance also had a government contract, and that one of their unofficial duties they were often tasked with doing was secretly ferrying the Kennedys around California by helicopter. It took until 1993 before reporters were able to track down Murray Leibowitz to confirm the story James Hall told them. Something had so scared Leibowitz that he had moved away and begun living under an assumed name. At first, Leibowitz refused to cooperate with reporters, although eventually he agreed to talk to them and confirmed everything James Hall told them. So what was it that James Hall claimed happened? Hall said that he and Leibowitz arrived at Marilyn's house at around 10.30 p.m. where a hysterical woman, later identified as Pat Newcomb, led them to the tiny guest cottage behind the main house. There they found Marilyn Monroe lying nude and face up on the bed. Her heartbeat and respiration were weak, but she was still clinging to life. Hall and Leibowitz moved Marilyn from the bed to the floor where they inserted a breathing tube and began resuscitation on her. Their efforts appeared to be working and color was beginning to return to Marilyn's cheeks when another man, later identified as Dr. Greenson, showed up carrying a doctor's bag. 
At that time, the man ordered them to remove the resuscitator and begin CPR. All in Leibowitz knew never to argue with a doctor, so they did as they were told. The man took out a syringe from his bag and filled it with what Hall described as a dark brown liquid. Dr. Greenson claimed the liquid was adrenaline, although Hall knew adrenaline was a clear liquid. It should be noted that liquid Nembutal is a dark brown liquid, although it's possible Hall was simply confused by the liquid being in a brown bottle. The doctor then attempted to inject the needle into Marilyn's heart, but he did so at an incorrect angle and he struck a rib. Instead of pulling the needle back out, he leaned into it, and Hall was certain he heard one of Marilyn's ribs crack. It was also at that moment that a Hall said he saw Marilyn die. The doctor placed a stethoscope on Marilyn's chest, but couldn't find a heartbeat. He then told Hall he could leave. As the two ambulance drivers left the scene, Hall said he saw several Los Angeles police officers arrive on the scene. This included a police officer he identified as Sergeant Marvin Ianone. Sergeant Ianone was one of the Kennedy's regular security detail when they were in town. Records show that even though Sergeant Ianone was scheduled to be off work that evening, he mysteriously showed up at the police station and checked out a police cruiser for unknown reasons. Other officers who showed up at that time also allegedly included a close friend of Bobby Kennedy's, Captain James Hamilton of the Los Angeles Police Department Intelligence Division. According to a book by Donald Wolfe, the two men who showed up with Robert Kennedy at Maryland's door that night may have been a couple of Los Angeles police detectives from Kennedy's security detail. According to Wolfe, it was Hamilton and other officers on the scene who set up the locked room mystery of Marilyn's death by moving her body back to the bedroom. At just past midnight, a Beverly Hills police officer named Lynn Franklin pulled over a speeding car that he claimed was driven by Peter Lawford and also contained Dr. Greenson and Bobby Kennedy. They told him they were on urgent business and he let them go without issuing a ticket because he didn't want to get in trouble for pulling over the Attorney General of the United States. At about 2 a.m., some of Peter Lawford's neighbors reported a loud disturbance when a helicopter took off from the beach next to his home, blowing sand over their yards and into their swimming pools. Could this have been Schaefer Ambulance spiriting Robert Kennedy away from the scene? It certainly makes sense if it does. Keep in mind, none of this is to say that Bobby Kennedy deliberately had Marilyn Monroe murdered. One other plausible scenario is that the overdose was really an accident. It seems plausible based on Fred Otash's descriptions that Bobby Kennedy showed up at Marilyn's house that afternoon and angrily demanded Marilyn give up her diary, which, if it was revealed to the world, could prove very embarrassing to the Kennedys. If Marilyn had been self-medicating throughout the day, as was common for her around then, her death still could have been the result of an accidental overdose. If we are to believe that Kennedy returned to the house unexpectedly at 10 p.m. to try once again to obtain the diary... This could explain the phone call Marilyn had with Jose Bolaños that ended abruptly. After that, one theory is that the two men Kennedy arrived with forcibly injected Marilyn with more barbiturates, or perhaps gave her a chloral hydrate enema. This would have caused a near-fatal overdose even if killing her wasn't their intention. And when Dr. Greenson arrived at the guest cottage, he finished off the job by giving her one final dose of barbiturates. If any version of this is true and Marilyn Monroe's death was a massive conspiracy, then it seems like a lot of people knew what really happened and managed to keep their mouths shut. In the weeks following Marilyn's death, Los Angeles Police Chief William Parker is said to have begun angling to take over J. Edgar Hoover's job as head of the FBI. 
believed that Parker took the entire file from Marilyn Monroe's investigation with him to Washington, D.C. for unknown reasons. Afterwards, that same file disappeared. Shortly after, Parker quit to take a new higher-paying job as the head of security for the National Football League. It turns out he was recommended for the job by none other than Robert Kennedy. In the years after Marilyn's death, there have been dozens of books and articles written, each with their own theory on how she died. I've already mentioned Donald Wolfe's The Last Days of Marilyn Monroe, which offers to me one of the most exhaustive and believable theories on Marilyn's death. Another book written by Sam Giancana's half-brother claims that Marilyn was murdered by a couple of mob hitmen on orders from Giancana who didn't want the mysterious diary to surface, since it also contained plenty of mafia secrets as well. There's yet another popular theory that claims Marilyn Monroe faked her death with the help of Dr. Greenson, and that she was committed to a Canadian mental institution for 20 years. An author named John Baker claimed he picked up a schizophrenic hitchhiker who claimed to be Marilyn Monroe near Nova Scotia in 1984. There's even a 2017 UFO documentary named Unacknowledged that claims the real reason Marilyn was murdered was because she was about to reveal to the world's secrets John F. Kennedy had shared with her about the government's secret dealings with aliens from another planet. With all the contradictory testimony and lost evidence, it's impossible to say what really happened for sure. And considering by now all the witnesses who were around back then are now dead, I doubt we'll ever learn much more than we already know. There is one last story that lends credence to the theory that this was all one big political cover-up, though. In 1985, Eunice Murray was being interviewed by the BBC. While she was on camera, she repeated the same story that she had been telling for years. But after the camera stopped rolling, Murray didn't realize her voice was still being recorded. And that's when she made a startling admission. Murray put her face in her hands and said, Why at my age do I have to keep covering this thing up? She then went on to confirm to a reporter the details of the affair between Marilyn Monroe and Bobby Kennedy. And perhaps most damning of all, she admitted that when Dr. Greenson and Dr. Engelberg arrived on the scene, Marilyn had still been alive. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and Entirely Fictional Identity. Thanks so much for listening to this special two-part episode. If you're listening to this on the day of its release, you'll notice it's out a few days early. I decided to do so because I'm about to head off on a much-needed vacation. Don't worry, though, the show will be back in two weeks on its normal Monday schedule. Getting to hear the show a few days early is just one of the perks you can get by signing up for my Patreon account. Along with early episode releases, my patrons also get all sorts of bonuses like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and of course our bonus mini-episodes. Right now, there are a whole bunch of Conspirators episodes up on Patreon that you haven't heard yet, and they're only one tiny subscription away. If you don't feel like signing up for Patreon but still want to support the show, something else you can do that's easy and free is subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your reviews and ratings helps boost us in Apple's rankings, and helps spread the good word about the Conspirators to more listeners. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also on Google Play, Stitcher, and most of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you have time, drop us a line and let us know how we're doing. I always love to hear from you. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next time.